another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, those fabulous artisans and craftspeople, the producers, writers, directors, composers, actors, uh, production designers, costume designers, uh, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, authors, you name it, we talk to them. Uh, It's a big week in Hollywood. It's the countdown to the Oscars, the 93rd Academy Awards, or Sunday, coming to you from a new venue this year, from Union Station. It'll be interesting. Um, nobody's really quite sure how the Oscars are going to play a- play out. Steven Soderbergh, one of the producers, has been saying the Oscars will play like it is a movie. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I can hardly wait to see that or if I really want to wait to see that. But we'll find out on Sunday. On Saturday, a virtual Film Independent Spirit Awards. No tent, not on the beach. I'm not there. The first one I haven't covered. Um, but that will be virtual. And of course the big award I'm, I'm anxious to find out about that I'm rooting for with the spirit awards is Valerie Mahaffey for best supporting actress for her work in French exit Oscars. Um, I think Chadwick Boseman, it's a give, it's a given Chadwick is going to pick up best actor. Um, everything else I really think is up in the air, especially after the BAFTAs, but I am pulling for. Trial of the Chicago 7, and Best Cinematography, Fade on Papa Michael. Um, now, I would love to see VFX come through for George Clooney's Midnight Sky. I think that's a long shot. Um, composers, there's everything is just, a lot of nominations were surprises, a lot of snubs and omissions, things we've talked about uh, over the past month or so. But uh, this is the big weekend, and then we jump into Emmy Awards season. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that, and I really hope that with the Emmy Awards that we finally see a big push coming for Yellowstone. Uh, And I know all the Yellowstone fans out there would love to see that happen as well. Today, I'm very excited about today's show on Behind the Lens. Um, we've got Tanner Beard, writer, director, and actor Tanner Beard joining us at the midpoint of the show to talk about his film, The Legend of Hell's Gate, an American Conspiracy. Film is celebrating its 10th anniversary, and I understand there will be a 10-year anniversary director's cut coming out, and boy, I'm going to hound Tanner about that because I want to see it. Uh, This is a good old Western done as more or less it feels like a historical fiction Uh, taking the legend of actual events, mixing it with a couple other Old West-flavored tales, and uh, putting it all together for the legend of Hell's Gate. Hell's Gate, it's a real place in Possum Kingdom Lake in Texas. So Tanner will be talking to us about that. And, of course, I've been teasing this. We're going to kick off the show with Jacob's Wife, one of my must-see films for 2021, written and directed by Travis Stevens. Uh, 
co-writers are Kathy Charles and Mark Steensland. Um, stars Barbara Crampton as Jacob's wife and Larry Fessenden as Reverend Jacob, two of my most favorite people in the world. I love Larry. I love Barbara. I have known both of them for many years. Um, Larry even longer than Barbara. And this film is delicious. Absolutely delicious. Very quickly, I want to mention, though, before we jump into Jacob's Wife, hey, check out BehindTheLensOnline.net, where we've got a bunch of new interviews up there with Luke Goss, uh, Thorborn Har. Uh, Thorburn uh, talks about Thorburn talks about uh, the tunnel, uh, Norwe- a Norwegian disaster film, which is it is incredible. And Luke talks about his new film, Hollow Point, uh, which he plays against t- the type you normally expect from Luke Goss. Uh, but the interviews are fabulous, and uh, you will get to hear them. They are video interviews, but as a slideshow. Uh, so you can hear the talent talking. Also, the filmmakers, the boys behind Held, that interview is also up and out already uh, all over the place. And look for the pen name, the quarterly print publication, um, John Corcoran and, Char- and Charlie, McNult- Charlie West McNulty. The, it is out in hard copy all around Los Angeles, available by subscription. It's also available online, but the print copy is so much better. And uh, featured this month is my regular column, uh, where we've got interviews with, who have we got here? We've got Martin Guigi, Lance Henriksen, Fisher Stevens, Louise Linton, and Todd Miller. So please check out the pen name. Uh, it is a really great publication and a whole lot of fun. All right, now onward and upward. Two, Jacob's wife. This is so original, so fresh, so fun. Married couple, Jacob and his wife Anne. Jacob is a minister. Think the original Footloose. Um, think Diane Weiss character for Anne, uh, for the put-upon, downtrodden minister's wife. Dresses dowdy, very quiet, very pale, very mousy. But she wants more in her life. And uh, an old flame comes to town to help her with a real estate deal for a charitable uh, committee that she works on. And she gets a, a, a taste, a taste, a temptation of what life might be like if she wasn't with Jacob. But she is with Jacob. But something happens to her. And while in the throes of what-if temptation, she suddenly is transformed uh, and takes on some rather vampiric tendencies, which totally changes her personality, her persona, and puts the comedy, not slapstick comedy, but dry, you know, nuanced subtlety as only Larry and Barbara can deliver, as they play upon each other, as he's trying to figure out what has come over his wife, who now looks like a fashion plate, going through every decade of fashion. And, of course, he comes home and finds her licking blood off the kitchen floor. 
Not exactly what every husband wants to find. But it sets the stage. The film is, the production values are fabulous. Costumer Yvonne Reddy, production designer Lily Bolas, uh, directed by Travis Stevens. This is, and cinematography by Dave Ma- David Matthews is fabulously done for this film. But let's take a listen first to my exclusive interview with Travis Stevens. It's his second feature. Uh, he's produced many, many things. He's directed some shorts. This is his second feature, though. Um, he had previously done Girl on the Third Floor, which I also saw uh, a couple of years ago. But take a listen to my exclusive interview with writer-director Travis Stevens talking about Jacob's Wife. Hey, Travis. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm I'm great. I'm really excited. The movie's coming out. People seem to like it. So, hey, it's good days over here. Hey, this I am so in love with this movie. Watching Larry and Barbara together and finally get to have screen real screen time together. Unlike their two prior projects, this is a marriage made in horror heaven. Oh, now I'm just blushing. Yeah, I agree. It really is. They're they're obviously such talented actors, and it was such a such an honor and so much fun to be able to work with them on these in these roles where not only are they in the movie from beginning to the end, but these are like the the characters transform mm-hmm. and, they, and as actors they really get to show their their chops uh it was yeah it was really exciting it was a lot of fun and a real honor to watch the two of them this is really a master class in acting with the nuance that gets brought to these characters and to see larry step into the role of a pastor it's just like <laughs> It's a sight to behold because it's not something you expect. So to get to see him layer that with very dry humor as only he can do it is just delicious. And Barbara just, I don't think she's ever had this much fun with a role. And it shows. Amazing, yeah. It was, um, I mean, one of the goals with the film was to, for for not only for the characters to transform, but to really show, for it to be a transformative experience for Barbara and Larry as actors too, where they can show uh, aspects of, them, of, of their skills that maybe not every movie asks them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, and it's nice to hear the, you know, the little character moments and the looks and the and those little um, relationship texture details. That was something that we, we talked about a lot uh, before shooting began, really talking about what a long-term uh, relationship looks like and what are those little, little things that maybe get under your skin, how you resolve conflict, all of those conversations and, uh, and the details. And you know, we tried to put into the movie so that it has the authenticity mm-hmm. uh, so that this couple feels real and not just that they feel real but that their conflict feels real right. it's not as uh, exaggerated a conflict as you know the good wife the bad husband 
you know, this is, this is a couple that there is love there. It's just the relationship has become more stagnant over time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, trying to trying to find the, the, the ways that they remain connected and then stretching at that as this, uh, you know, fantastic event comes into their life. Uh, that was you know, part of the uh, conceptual approach to the movie. So it's well, good to hear it worked. <laughs> it definitely works. And I have to say, we get to the kitchen scene. And without any spoilers, you know the kitchen scene I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when Larry's character, when Jacob walks in the kitchen and there is Anne on her hands and knees on the kitchen floor, the nonchalant, dumbstruck nature of what are you doing it's not only in his voice, it's all over his face, but that is, I could so see my own father walking into the kitchen if my mother was on the floor on her hands and knees. You know, what are you doing? I think everybody, especially of, of an, you know, an older generation, the baby boomer generation, immediately you're going to see the authenticity in that, but also the humor of it. And the whole tone of the film shifts with that scene. And that's when your comedy, which it's not in-your-face slapstick comedy, it's very dry, nuanced subtlety. And it just takes off, and it's brilliantly executed. Ah, that that is so awesome to hear. But Because, yes, that's the intention. The movie transforms as (laughs) Anne's character transforms, and right there the the fantastic aspect of the situation they're in is laid out and and what how do you react to that you know there's only one way it's like this is crazy that's what the movie does well something that you also do is anybody that has a fear of dentist you really put a bigger fear of god into people that are afraid of going to the dentist Hey, so uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, Easter eggs and, and uh, winks <laughs> at uh, other vampire films. Yes. But I also wanted to uh, put some new things in there, and I had never seen a vampire in a dentist chair before. No. Uh, no. Maybe it exists. I just hadn't seen it, and it seemed like a fun, uh, fun, fun scene to have. Oh, it's hilarious. You have so many, so many things happening in here. So many new, little subtle touches. You know, like we've got, you've got a, a sterling silver cross necklace that Anne's wearing until she goes to the warehouse. Then that disappears because obviously we can't have silver. But you've got a gold cross hanging in Jacob's car, which besides matching the color tone of the car itself with the yellow and the tan interiors, it also means that Anne can be in the car and not have to worry. We go from, instead of vampire fangs, we've got rat teeth. All of these little things that set this apart. And then you take a look at Anne's clothes, how her clothing changes. And it goes from dowdy, frumpy, minister's wife from the 1950s, flash dance or, or uh, footloose to you know that black and white outfit where she looks like she just walked off of a Coco Chanel runway 
to flouncy Peter Max inspired floral prints and you everything it's done timelessly so we so we don't get caught up uh, or pigeonholed and then you look at what you and Lily Bowles do with the production design Jacob and Ann's house speaks volumes as to who they are what their marriage is what their life is it's almost like with that tonal shift it's like we're in a mausoleum yeah. that is preserved because the heavy drapes get closed and they have a weight that's almost like a cotton velveteen you've got the furniture with the floral slip covers on it and I love that we can actually see the elastic on the bottom of the slip covers when Anne is moving furniture <laughs> yeah. that shows economizing by the minister's wife you gotta worry about these things but all these little touches which begs the question where do you as a director even start you're not a novice filmmaker you have you directed before you did girl on the third floor for your prior feature debut but you've produced quite a bit and here you are working with two veterans both of whom are producers in the genre plus decades of experience so i'm curious where do you start as a director to bring Jacob's wife to life, paying attention to all of these tiny little details that build this film. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and and you know everybody's uh, process is probably different. My my process is if I can really clearly identify the core of the movie, what I want the movie to say, what the movie's about, what the central conceit of it is all of these little tiny details will start materializing themselves, whether it's at the script writing stage, you know, out on a jog or whatever, these little details will start to pop up and, and then you start, oh yeah, this would fit here, this would fit here. And, and, and it's like um, you start building out uh, from that central idea and all the way through production, you know, you, 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 your eye can start seeing the potential magic. Maybe it's like hunting truffle. Like if you, if you get the, if you know what you're looking for, even though the thing looks like the, uh, you know, big forest, you can just sort of focus in on the, on the gold you're looking for, even if it's kind of hidden. Mm-hmm. That's, that's been how I work. Identify the main big thing and the little details will come and mm-hmm. i'm glad that you you noticed so many of them because those are the, the the things that make it fun as an art form oh and and those little touches add element their own visual elements of humor yeah as yeah. as things are unfold, unfolding talk to me about working with david matthews your cinematographer because i have to say you have some really nice lighting and lensing happening here you've got we've got some really great dutch camera dutching we've got very very interesting camera placement and dave he really plays with lighting in the warehouse scenes and then in the contrast within jacob and ann's home um with with the heaviness of the drapes and the light diffusion that comes through and uh, the play of shadows and using you know physical lights table lamps and things 
I'm curious about how you worked and developed your visual tonal bandwidth from a somatographic standpoint. Yeah, so uh, David Matthews is uh, a, a Mississippi local. Uh, there's a really fun, talented film community down there. Mm -hmm. And when we uh, were looking at places to shoot, uh, David had worked on a, on a couple of films a buddy of mine had directed, uh, Open 24 Hours and Dark Light. Uh, and so, oh, wow, there's this great DP down there who knows horror movies. That's a, that's a huge plus. So that, that was great. Uh, and really, we wouldn't have been able to do the movie without uh, not just David and his talent, but, you know, the the relationships he had and all the other talented people that he brought on board. Uh, so I appreciate David and, and the company iBox Entertainment that's based down there. In terms of the aesthetic of the film, I knew I wanted to take the gothic quality of like traditional vampire movies mm -hmm. and apply it to a small town American environment. And that was the, the, the basic idea of how do we turn these uh, banal, you know, um, not generic, but, but recognizable Americana locations into something and exaggerate it in such a way that it has the feel of a old Gothic castle or, uh, you know, whatever, uh, the, the woods or, or whatever, you know, basically playing against the iconography of classic vampire films. Mm -hmm. um, one example of a movie that does this incredibly well is Abel Ferrara's The Addiction, where even though the story is set in New York City, where they blocked the action, uh, where they put their light sources, it gives New York City a gothic feel. And it worked perfectly for, for that film, and that was a similar quality I wanted for this one. Some of your most outstanding visual sequences come in terms of your lighting and your lensing. The warehouse, the vibrancy of the inkiness of the blacks with, with spotlight shining through and coming in and creating a shadow is just it's slick, it's glossy, it's rich. You can feel that negative space. You can see it, and it works so beautifully. And you and David carry that through into the nighttime, quote-unquote, gardening scene, um, which, again, you make the night very rich as opposed to the diffusion of daylight. And I found that really striking, but it stands out so beautifully, metaphoric for, you know, life. Everything comes to life at night, especially when Anne is around. And, yeah. and it really works so well from the visuals translate emotionally so well, Travis. It's, it's spectacular to look at. Wow, I mean... Thank you. <laughs> it's a, it's something that I'm still learning. So it's uh, you know as a as a as a director, um, you know how to utilize the image to evoke the emotion is is something that um, 
you know, it's, it's exciting and also uh, you never, you're always learning. I'm definitely still learning. So it's nice to hear that, uh, that in, in Jacob's life, you know, it's working. Thanks. It works well. And of course, I love, you've got some nice special effects in there um, with the master. And yeah. I love the fact you went with a woman in yeah, casting. Thanks. That is... Uh, Brilliant! Brilliant! Well, it, it seemed to be the simplest way to focus the movie and focus the audience on what Anne's transformation is actually about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like I, when I answered earlier that if you identify the core theme or the core concept of your movie, these other details begin to, to present themselves. This was something that when I had read the script, uh, the one that had been sent to me, the, the master character was male, and they were kind of presenting Anne with uh, a choice between lovers. And that wasn't what I thought Anne's transformation was about. Right. It was about, do you want to be with him or do you want to be with me? It should be about, what do you want? Mm -hmm. And what Anne wants is to, you know, have a bigger say in the trajectory of her life. And uh, changing the gender of the master immediately changes the tenor of what the master is saying. Mm -hmm. And then that story can be much more. It could, it, she, the master could speak to Anne about different things. And, uh, yeah, it felt like a, a, a big eureka moment. And to have Bonnie Aaron um, in the role, somebody who, you know, before that, you know, we, we knew the humanity of the master. It was so important for it to be there. And Bonnie has such a striking uh, presence and such a strong performer. She can sort of perform through the layers of makeup. Uh, so it was so really lucky that uh, to, to get a chance to work with her, and I think she did a fantastic job bringing that character to life and it, giving her some swagger. Yes. Uh, Bonnie had asked, you know, when we did our first read through, before the read through, Bonnie had asked, you know, how do you how do you see me playing this character? You know, I'm like what, three hundred years old, six hundred years old, uh, you know, Eastern European. And my advice was, I think you should play this character like a rich divorcee who lives in Palm Beach. <laughs> and what she's saying to Anne is basically, come on, sweetheart, let's go have some fun, you know? And uh, Bonnie, Bonnie definitely got that. Yeah, and of course, kudos to, you know, the makeup department. Uh, and the prosthetics in creating the master. Just absolutely spectacular from the nails to to the ear, to the earpieces, to the facial. Really nicely, nicely done. It just, the whole visual look is something we haven't really seen. We ha we've never really seen that vampiric look feminized until now and it really works one more big question for Travis 
<laughs> okay, uh, I'm going to squeeze in a little bit of an answer to the previous question, too. Go for it. Okay, yeah, the big question is, what did, now that you have finished this film and it's about to come out there in the world for everyone, what did you learn about yourself as a director, not a producer, but a director, that you will now take forward into future projects? That is such a fascinating question, and I kid you not, on my desktop is a document right now titled, Things I Learned, <laughs> because this is something I am trying to, trying to look at. I think the most pragmatic thing is not compromising in the moment to really recognize if a thing is matching your intention or not. And if it's not, having the, the confidence to stop and figure out why a thing's not working and make the adjustments so that it does work. And this happens all the time in making movies, but, but you, you, you're on the battlefield and there's explosions happening all around and, and you can, you can get a, a bit shell-shocked by, by the process. And I think just keeping that in mind that you know, the, what's in the movie is gonna be there forever. And if it's not quite working, you know, being, being confident enough in your vision that you stop and say, okay, we need to figure this out, it's very important. That's one thing. On, on a much more positive, what I took away from the movie is you can go through uh, the battlefield of making a film and have it be fun and comfortable and rewarding and uh, on this particular movie we were hit with monsoons that you know threw our schedule out of whack there was illness moving through there was uh, a deer you know a car hit a deer there were, there were all these little um uh, hand grenades that the universe was throwing at us and yet we were still having so much fun making the movie because we all believed in the movie we believed in each other and we were uh, supporting each other so that's another thing that I took away and I just definitely wanted every movie moving forward I want to make sure it's a, a rewarding experience for everybody who's working on it uh, and then just back to the makeup thing Marcus Koch and Jesse Seitz phenomenal makeup artist from a company Autopsy FX and I said hey let's do a female version of, uh, of you know, the classic Nosferatu design and, and they knocked it out of the park so I'm very grateful to them oh, job so well done Travis I can't wait to see your next film that you direct well I'm hard at work on it so uh, I hope to talk to you soon <laughs> well I want a sequel to Jacob's Wife so do we. We would love to see uh, uh, what happens next in this relationship. Your freeze frame ending is perfection, and I want a sequel. All right. I'm putting it in the contract. And that was co-writer and director Travis Stevens talking about how he envisioned and brought Jacob's wife to life. Okay, we are trying to find out where Tanner Beard is right now. Pam, do you want to plug in a, a quick break? And 
Hopefully Tanner will be on the line when we come back. If not, we're going to jump into our interview with Larry Fessenden. Um, so we'll be right back. It's Olivia Munn with my shelter pets, Frankie and Chance. Say hi, guys. When I adopted them, I discovered that they both have incredible personalities. Chance's sole purpose in life is to love and to be loved. Frankie is a little bit of a scoundrel and always entertaining. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt pure love at theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the Humane Society of the United States, and Maddie's Fund. A powerful threat calls for a greater response. Not tomorrow. Not in a few years. But right now. Some battles must be faced together. Cancer fighters stand up to cancer every day. And you can be part of this battle too. Visit StandUpToCancer.org to learn more. Together, we can save lives. Okay, well, I was hoping for more than 30 seconds, but that's okay. That was two, <laughs> was two minutes, huh? Wow. Okay, well, I have not heard from the publicist for Tanner and the film The Legend of Hell's Gate, an American conspiracy. So we're just going to continue right along talking about Jacob's wife. And I have to tell you, this is not the complete Larry Fessenden interview. Uh, because so much of, as many of you already know, after have, hearing Larry live on the show and hearing, seeing us in Q&As in theaters, as a matter of fact, the last one that he and I did was at the Arclight in Hollywood, uh, a theater that will not be reopening, barring some kind of a miracle uh, from the cinematic gods. But uh, so much of it, we, we drift, we drift. I think all of you, after seven years, you know, I drift. Um, I go with a stream of consciousness with films uh, and with topics. But uh, the excerpt you're going to hear from my interview with Larry uh, talks about him getting into character. It talks about um, finding uh, the character of Jacob talks about his the Jack Nicholson influence, uh, which he has long had Jack channeling through him in so many of his performances. Uh, but he also opines on Travis as a director, his great visual eye as a director. And this is something that Larry has always done. He has spent so many years finding the gems, finding these up-and-comers uh, as filmmakers. Uh, Larry and his production company and as a producer, I mean, he has given us and, ex- and shown us some of the most talented guys um, who have gone even beyond the horror genre, like Jim Mickle, Joe Maggio, Adam Wingard, Joe Swanberg, Simon Barrett, Ty West, um, Larry has helped. He sees something in in these guys. He sees something in their films, much as what Jason Blum does. Um, Larry just does it on a smaller, a smaller economic scale, 
than what Blumhouse has now been able to do over the years. But, and here, he's not a producer, but Larry still has that producer's eye, his own directorial eye, and his eye as an actor. Um, because Larry pops in and out of films. This is his third film with Barbara Crampton. Uh, the two, have, as you'll hear Larry talk about, the two have done radio plays together. Yes, radio plays still exist. Youngsters, yes, they exist. Um, but they've never been husband and wife. And in Your Next, which is a fabulous film, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it for all you horror fans out there. Um, they're not even in the same scenes. So to get these two icons on screen together for an entire film is incredible. Absolutely incredible. So, without any further ado, let's take a listen to a lengthy excerpt, about 10 minutes, of my 35 or 40 minute interview uh, of frivolity with, with Larry Fessenden talking Jacob's wife. What I love is you always champion, you do this as a producer, you do this when you're directing, you always champion these young filmmakers. Uh, young directors, you know, Ty West, Simon, Swanberg, Adam, uh, Maggio, and Jim Mickle. Yeah. Um, you always champion them. And you're doing that here again with Travis. So I'm curious, and as Barbara has, has started doing within the past decade, really championing uh, right. these, these newcomer writer-directors uh, in the genre, so I'm, I'm really curious, when you see a script like Jacob's Wife, are you looking at this with your producer and directorial eye? Are you looking at it as an actor? What are the considerations that you have in looking at something like this? What lens well, do you use? I mean, what, what I like is the genre trying to do something uh, different. You know, where the, there's a feeling of, like, they're vampires, but this is a story about a marriage. Or my Frankenstein movie was obviously Frankenstein, but we're going to look at the creature and with fresh eyes. In fact, we're going to be from his point of view. So it's really any, any project that has um, a kind of a personalized ambition and still has a, the pleasure of the genre notes, uh, that's going to attract me. And then as for committing, you know, I'll, I like doing little walk-ons and giving my, uh, you know, giving my aid in that way to the young filmmaker. But uh, it's really, I, it has to do with the intention of the film. Obviously, The Mentor is a very strange movie, but I really like what Chad was trying to do, work with his sister who has um, Down syndrome. And, you know, that's really pushing the envelope. And then, you know, you see how well they do, but I'm, I'm interested in helping because as you and I both know, low budget, but no budget, micro budgets, there's no rehearsal time. There's no this, that, or the other. And in looking at this film, I see the money for this film on the screen in the detail. The devil is right. in the details in this film. So what kind of, did you, the two of you veterans, did you have the luxury of rehearsal time? Or how was this preparation and performance experience for you 
teaming up with Barbara in what essentially boils down to a two-hander? Well, you know, it's really, both of us like working and being candid and cutting right through anything that would get in the way of being honest on screen as best we can. I mean, it's still a genre movie, almost a comedy. It's all those things, so it's not like we're doing Cassavetes, but we were... Uh, we were committed to bring some humanity and truth to, to the script. Uh, and and we lived in the same house in Mississippi, and we'd, you know, have coffee in the morning, and we'd chat in the evening, and sometimes make dinner for each other, and we shopped together. I mean, you know, we kind of knew both this is a fun way to spend a month making something together, but we also knew this is good background material for, for uh, two actors to feel at home. And then beyond all that, you just get down to work and, you know, you're doing a scene and you're like, I'm going to do this here. And sometimes Barbara would say, oh, I think maybe you could be more stern there. And we'd say, all right, let's try that. So it was a big, just a collaboration with Travis. Uh, and then beyond that with certain crew members, you know, it's really fun to make these smaller films. You show up every day, same people, and you slightly get to know their stories and their personalities that's the beauty of making films it's a very you hear the cliche that it's like being in a the circus or a carny you know you for one month you're all really in it to win it together how long before you got to see the finished product oh pretty much you know another six or eight months i saw a uh, a fairly tight cut and I did give some notes, and I think Travis had already been through a lot. Uh, he had a couple of people to answer to, so I don't think he really needed too many more notes. <laughs> uh, but it's pretty much the movie that that he had arrived at, and uh, it, it was fun. You know, that's always a weird experience. You leave a movie and you realize they spent every day with you, you know, since. And... Uh, so picture him during COVID. I mean, we finished like a week before COVID brought down the nation. So he was obviously had this fantastic opportunity if you're in isolation to uh, to make his movie. So I'm sure he. Was, I was very grateful in my own way to have done something before the pandemic struck. But I, I like the way the lockdown did afford filmmakers like Travis the time to really work in post and hone in, fine-tune the editing and the pacing. Um, that's right. And it is that final step. That's really where the nuance and the time comes in. You know, we have these editing computers now, so you can get a cut pretty quickly, but there's just the human animal needs time to, to process what they're looking at. So it made a big difference. I had produced my son's film, and he was afforded all this time to write a really beautiful score for his movie, which would have felt awkward if we were not in, in COVID. You know, we would have said, well, you pretty much got to get this done in three weeks. But instead, he had three months. <laughs> made a difference, you know, in the quality of the work. In this film, as I watch it, that that time that Travis had, it really shows because of the subtlety that you and Barbara bro both bring to these characters, but not just individually. 
together because so much of what we see, because this is about this marriage, it's about action and reaction. And if you don't cut that right, you're going to blow the entire moment. That's right. And we did give different performances, just as you do. Sometimes the director says, let's do one. We've got it, but let's do another one. And then you do something a little more outside the box. And, you know, that takes, as I say, it takes time to shape that, whether you want that more erratic take. I always love this story that Meryl Streep, she does one that's perfect. She does another one that's a little wacky. And then she does a third one that's bananas. And, that, you know, she's obviously such a pro that she just does three versions. And, uh, you know, sometimes you use that last version and you get some juice. How many takes did you, on the average, did you have with the scenes in Jacob's Wife? Probably three. You know, that's about... I mean, of course, you can do five or seven if things aren't quite clicking. And there's usually more than one thing that needs doing. You know, we do some jump scares and some timing things. It's, it's pretty standard. We didn't, I never felt ripped off. So I could even ask for another take. But usually you just try to get it done. That's, that's a little bit my approach. Not quite the Kubrick approach. <laughs> <laughs> We'd still be filming. <laughs> what is it about Jacob that speaks to you, Larry? There's so much to this guy. And even though the film is Jacob's wife, without Jacob and, the, and who you present him as, we're not going to care about Jacob's wife. Well, I'm not sure if that's true, but I do have a kinship to Jacob. I think he's a man of principle. He's old-fashioned. He sort of thinks the wife should be dutiful, and that's maybe his flaw. And it's a movie about him learning that he's got to uh, be more thoughtful. Uh, but I think, you know, he feels like he's responsible for this town and their souls. And I like uh, a character that's engaged with morality and, and principles and uh, and I think he's just also a little full of himself and thinks that he's right and thinks that he is moral so that's where his flaw comes in he's kind of rigid and even a bit of a dick <laughs> but, but you know when push comes to shove he cares for his wife and he wants to actually do the right thing so that's where I think you can find some sympathy and you know you never play a character to uh, evoke a result you just have to understand where they're coming from and hope that the audience becomes engaged or sympathetic empathetic and that was Larry Fessenden with some pearls of wisdom of his own experience on Jacob's wife well, neither the publicist nor the distributor of The Legend of Hell's Gate can find writer-director Tanner Beard. They have no clue. So we're going to move along and talk more Jacob's Wife. And we're going to take a listen to what Barbara Crampton, an excerpt of my interview with Barbara, um, of course, part of our interview was about laundry and COVID. 
our la- the last film we talked about was about cooking dinner. Um, all of these homey comforts that come from knowing from knowing each other for so long. But I have to say, this is without a doubt one of my f- most favorite roles of Barbara's over her vast career. And bear in mind that Barbara goes all the way back to soap opera days uh, as part of her training ground. And then she moved in. Then she was doing random roles here and there and found a real niche in the horror genre. And she just soars, soars in every role. And then when she started stepping in as a producer to help nurture, like Larry has done for many years, um, one of the first films uh, she did, uh, is it Behind the Gates? She did uh, a great one, Road Games, Abner Pastel. Abner, I love, love, love his work as a writer-director. And uh, working with Barbara in that film, the great thing is you, can, you learn so much just being with people like Larry and Barbara. Any experience you already have, being around them just enhances that just by watching and listening uh, and seeing the calm methodology and manner of how they approach filmmaking, how they approach performance. So, without any further ado, let's take a listen to an excerpt of my interview with Barbara Crampton talking about her experience and notably the costuming of Jacob's Wife. What I love with this film is he had the benefit of you and Larry and both of you just love shepherding younger talent. You, mm-hmm. you both love doing it. So for any director to come on board a film that the two of you are involved in in any capacity, but you in particular as a producer here, I told him he was one lucky guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was a collaboration of all of us. I mean, I think we all helped each other. We all have certain strengths, and um, definitely Larry, of course, because, you know, he's used to working with young filmmakers all the time. Um, And I I don't know. I, you know, from Stuart Gordon to now, I just seem to work with a lot of first and second time directors. And I, you know, I love helping other people realize their dreams and tell their stories and, you know, all this though this story was a very personal story to me and something I found, um, you know, Travis was very thoughtful about uh, his approach to the material and his approach to working with Larry and I, and, and I think we all worked in a really nice way together. How did you find this story? Because I know this has been your baby for a while to get this made. Yeah. Well, it won uh, best screenplay at the Shriekfest Film Festival in Los Angeles in 2015, and it was around that time that I had just produced Beyond the Gate with Jackson Stewart. Yeah, and so uh, Denise Gossett, who was the fest director there, and Mark Steensland, the original writer of Jacob's Wife, conspired together to send it to me, thinking that either it would be a good vehicle for me or maybe I'd want to produce it, or both. 
And when I read it, I just loved the story, Debbie. And I think you can relate to it, too. Oh, my God, yes. An older woman gets to have another chance at looking at her life and realizing that she wanted something more. And maybe she could recapture that again. And that was something that I felt like I had just gone through when I came back with your next Mm -hmm. uh, a number of years ago. I felt like it perfectly mirrored my life. And it it spoke to me, and so I really, really wanted to to work on it. I didn't think it was going to take me five years to get to this point, but um, I developed a script for a little bit with with Mark and a couple of other writers that came on, including Kathy Charles, and then I took it to a few, uh, a lot of production companies, <laughs> and finally. Bob Portal, my partner at Alliance Media Partners, and he really loved the story and what it said and my involvement with it and and, and got the whole vibe of, you know, uh, a woman sort of reinventing her life after uh, not feeling like she had um, given enough to herself or her own life. He really understood that and understood me in the part, and so... We developed it even further with Kathy and then uh, with Mark and then bringing on Travis towards, you know, I guess about six or eight months before we started filming, we, we started looking for a director. And uh, and we always kind of knew we wanted Larry in the part, but we hadn't offered him the, the part specifically, but I had been talking to him about it for a number of years. And... Um, when we were looking for a director, we found Travis because he had just worked on uh, Girl on the Third Floor and he had a fantastic debut and we all knew one another and Bob Portal had worked with him before and and Larry and he knew each other and, you know, of course I know Travis. So it all, it all kind of came together quickly towards the end, towards right before filming and then we were able to film it right before the lockdown in March. We filmed it last February. So... So it took me five years to get to a point where everything happened very quickly within a year and a half. Um, But I can see why you hung on to this property, because this is such a good script. um, And it it is so funny. There is the humor. And to have you and Larry play this humor so dry um, is just delicious. Right. Well, I never wanted to lose the essence of who she was mm-hmm. as a character inside. I mean, she does change, and she gets into new zest for life. But, you know, she wasn't going to change completely. She's still Aunt. She's still she's still Jacob's wife, yeah. you know? Um, but she's changed. And so I think it was important for us to stay true to our characters and who we were and not completely go off the rails. But we also wanted to offer something really fun for the horror fans and and also to highlight the idea that in the beginning of the movie their life is kind of beige and dull and very um very ordinary and uh and and what's the word i'm looking for washed it, out <laughs> well it's like expected yeah like there's nothing there's nothing different or interesting it's just every day is very similar yeah it's very and mundane so the mundane, their day-to-day life, you know, doesn't change that much. And when she gets bitten by the vampire, 
everything changes. Mm-hmm. Life is more exciting. It's more messy. It's funnier. It's brighter. It's cooler. Everything does change. So the tone, there is a tonal shift in the movie that coincides with the tonal shift that's going on inside of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, so, yeah. And the way that that tonal shift is translated visually is it is killer no pun intended but Mm -hmm. it is killer we get the vibrancy of color um saturation comes into play all of a sudden in jacob and ann's house the heavy velvet drapes cotton velveteen almost are drawn instead of being open so you get that mausoleum tombish kind of feel in Mm -hmm. in the house but for the kitchen um, and the kitchen is very stark. Um, but it just, the whole thing, but the biggest change we see then comes through costume, your costuming, yeah. hair, and makeup. That mm-hmm. shift, and it is just, boom! It's not like right? there's a transition. Um, it's boom. And I love the fact that so prominently displayed in the first act of the film, the first scenes, is the little silver cross that Anne wears. And then the little silver cross disappears because we all know what happens to vampires in yeah. silver. Right. And these little touches start happening. Um, but the black and white outfit, which is the first one we see, that is just everything is black and white. Mm-hmm. You know, the metaphor that comes into play with the costuming, you had to have worked with Yvonne to come up with with these looks for Anne. You had you to. Know, no, I have to <gasps> say, it's really all Yvonne. She did an amazing job. I have to give it to her. We went shopping together for a couple of the outfits for the... the the orange dress that I wear. Mm-hmm. We needed we needed an extra outfit that was very colorful, and we realized we wanted to have one more change. And so she said, "Well, let's let's go to some vintage shops." And and oh, also no, with the, the blue and the blue and white dress, the blue and white flower dress, we we found together too. There was two outfits that we found together, but the whole look and the feel and the vibe of everything, she understood what that meant. And she and Travis talked about it a lot, too. And we wanted the world to open up visually and for Anne to, you know, dress in more exciting and vibrant ways. And um, Yvonne is just spectacular. And she had a vision for uh, a couple of the outfits that were really um, seminal to the story, like the 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 dark midnight blue outfit mm-hmm. that I wear at the end with the hood. It was sort of like a cape. She said, I want you to feel like you have a cape on, but, you know, it's going to be a sweater because you're Anne better. And, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're, a, you're a wife, a housewife. And so if you were a housewife and a vampire, what would you wear when you were being your most badass? So, um... So she found this beautiful blue sweater and these beautiful blue pants, and she got me a, you know, a, a blue top to go with it, and these cool glasses, and and then, um, you know, just the whole look of my hair at that point and everything, and the whole vibe. We we really did work hard on that for sure. Well, one of the great things about Anne's wardrobe 
once she turns is it's it spans the decades because you've got the black and white that is very it has a very coco chanel kind of feel to it and then yeah. you have the flower with the flower dress the blue and white flower dress and ruffles and it feels very 60s very peter max mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. almost like all of these decades that anne has been the woman behind Jacob and has fallen into yes, that's true too. the mundaneness. All of these decades, she's now experiencing all of them at one time. Yeah, life was moving. Life was moving faster, and we got a glimpse in, in into you know all the everything she, she missed. It's true, and uh, I kind of felt that way when I was watching Wandavision. Did you watch Wandavision? Oh God, yes. Yeah, I loved it, and it, and I had that same feeling because you know she goes through all the different decades, and and it was the same kind of thing with Anne's character of, of wearing all these different kinds of outfits that were representative of different time periods in her life, but but with a little bit more of a hint of vibrancy to them. Yeah, I mean, it just I loved how all of a sudden all the decades that Anne kind of just slept through. With no yeah. excitement, all of a sudden she's living all of them. Yeah, she got she got her life back totally. It's yeah. it's wonderful. You know how involved were you um, as a producer with all of these department heads and finding them, like your cinematographer Dave, mm -hmm. who I just love his work, and then you've got yeah. Tara's scoring. Um, mm -hmm. Because well, I, I feel your yeah. fingerprints when I watch it this. Was well, we, you know, we looked at a few different cinematographers, but um, Dave was somebody who was down there in Mississippi, in Canton, Mississippi, at our service production company, and he came recommended to us by another filmmaker who had worked with him a couple of times and had shot some movies down there. And we looked at his work, and we said, he's good. I mean, let's just use him. He was just... he. He was there, but he was good, and and we we just took a chance on him, and and he turned out to be amazing, and we'd love to make some more movies with him. Um, as far as the the music, Travis really wanted to have a woman composer, and he was a fan of Tara Bush and and her and her music, and she hadn't done a lot of musical scores before, but he knew that she could do it, so he handpicked her and really wanted her for the film so you know I stand behind Travis and he's been in the business for a very long time and he had he had really um, specific desires about certain things and Bob Portal and I tried to give him as much room as possible because we know he can do it and mm -hmm. we said yes you know um, as far as you know some of the looks for Anne and working with wardrobe that was definitely Travis and myself, of course, since I'm playing the character anyway, um, you know, I, I was really in on those uh, final decisions. And in casting, we were all in on the decisions together and looked at all the different tapes. And, and um, of course, Larry, we just offered it to, um, and a couple of other people we just offered it to, but we all talked about all the different roles and what we kind of wanted for each role and, and who could play the different parts and and a lot of the main cast we put together ourselves and just had a local casting director help us with the other people. Yeah, because you don't, your cast really is not that large. Your principal, I mean, this basically comes down to essentially 
a two-hander and a vampire. Yeah, uh, yeah, and a few other characters. Yeah, yeah, and and mm-hmm. and Bonnie was very important for us to, for me to have in the film as well um, because you know uh, it was Travis's idea to change the gender of the vampire brilliant woman to the master, and that really was brilliant, and it made so much sense. And when he did it, we all went, "Of course, that's what it should be," because what better than a woman? expressing to another woman who's held herself back for a long period of time to have another woman sort of give her the permission to find herself and to find her voice. And so immediately when when Travis said, I really want to make this a woman, I said, oh, that's a great idea. How about Bonnie Aaron? Uh, because Bonnie has been a friend of mine for a number of years, and I've seen her play these very iconic roles for years. But... I wanted to bring her out into the forefront a little bit more and give her just a little bit more of a juicy role than I felt like she may have had in some of her other recent films. And and I, you know, I just love Bonnie and I think she's beautiful and cool and she's so outgoing and so up for anything and really collaborative. And so um, we just offered her the part uh, immediately. I, I just think that was such a brilliant move to make the master female. And really, the look, though, with the makeup, the prosthetics, it's yeah. almost a slightly androgynous kind of vampire look. Sure. But there's still femininity that's thrown in there. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting to see. And then yeah. have her with that great monologue she gets in the third act. I know. Beautiful. Wow. And that is an excerpt of my interview with Barbara Crampton, one of the stars of Jacob's Wife. Jacob's Wife, Larry Fessenden, Barbara Crampton, Bonnie Aarons. It is available now. VOD, digital. It is everywhere. It is one of my must-see films of 2021 I can't recommend it highly enough uh sorry about no tanner beard and uh a look at a 10th anniversary western nobody can find him distributor can't find him publicist can't find him um tanner's loss uh but to the benefit of all of you because you got to get a really rounded look or listen uh to Jacob's wife Put it on your radar for this week, April 22nd. Two really great films, really interesting films um, from a production and design standpoint and performance and subject matter standpoint. Re- I love both of them. The one is Stowaway, written and directed by Joe Pena, who did the brilliant Arctic with Mads Mikkelsen uh, a few years ago. Uh, and it stars Anna Kendrick, Tony Collette, Daniel Day Kim, and Shamir Anderson. They're in a space. They're in a space station. Just the four of them. It's small. Uh, one of them is a stowaway. And with all the attention on Mars uh, right now, this couldn't be a more timely film. And I think a lot of the issues that are brought up in the film that set for this frantic and frightening situation uh, are things that you, you've you probably already heard coming from NASA reports, JPL reports about space travel and considerations and things like oxygen. So 
that opens this week. Also, Wildcat. Wow. It is another really good one. Um, really interesting. Uh, it's chapterized. It's from writer-director Jonathan Stokes. Uh, my first experience with Jonathan as a filmmaker was many years ago, in 2012, almost almost 10 years ago, with El Gringo, starring Scott Adkins and the wonderful Yvette Yates. So that is all the time we have today. So see, guests, you snooze, you lose on Behind the Lens. Sorry to say. Um, but see Jacob's Wife. It is out now. And we'll be back next week. And hopefully our live guests will call in, as they should. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.